Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. This week's case is a 22-year-old male who reports recurrent and intermittent episodes of rashes. He describes them as intensely itchy patches on his chest and arms and states he has experienced them for the past 10 years. Whenever the episodes occur, the rash remains for about a half hour and then as suddenly as it occurs, it resolves. The more recent episodes he can recall include following bathing and after walking outside on a rainy day. He wonders, could I be allergic to water? Find out now on this week's episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast with Emma and Hillary. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Hello. Yes. Episode number 12. So today I want to start by talking about water, a beloved substance for many, and also important part of our body. Maybe even the reason why we have life on earth, one might argue. Exactly. About 60% of the human body is water and the average 70 kilogram adult contains about 40 liters. So as we know, drinking water helps to prevent dehydration and causing your body to overheat. Also, water helps prevent constipation and kidney stones, amongst many other things. Right. So much so that if you didn't drink water, you die. Exactly. So why are we going to talk about water today? Because there is an unfortunate, unfortunate condition out there that affects a small population, but they're actually allergic to water and have difficulty drinking it, bathing in it, walking outside when it rains and anything else that has to do with water. Wow. I can't wait to learn more. We're super excited to talk to you today about an extremely rare condition called aquagenic urticaria. Whoa. Those are some big words you just said to us. Well, I'll break it down for you. Aquagenic, aqua means water and genic means formed by. This is a type of physical urticaria, which is also known as inducible or stimulated by something in the environment, such as heat, cold, pressure, any sort of exercise, water, vibrations, and sunlight. This is different than an IgE-mediated allergic reaction like anaphylaxis that we talked about in season one, episode six, that you can go back and listen to, to refresh your memory on IgE reactions. So this is extremely rare. About 50 cases have been reported in the medical literature and some online forums have more, but still considering the population, that is very uncommon. So it was first described uh, in about 1964 
And the kind of general characteristics are wheels that occur when a patient's skin makes contact with any type of water within about 30 minutes of exposure and can last anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours once the exposure has stopped. So what is a wheel? They are commonly known as hives. And if you are still unsure of what that rash would look like, think about if you've ever been touched by a stinging nettle, that intensely itchy, red, raised and swollen roundish rash. And sometimes, you know, they can kind of come together and even form a larger rash because the smaller ones all sort of coalesce together. Thanks for that description, Hill. Uh, Aquagenic urticaria most commonly develops on the trunk and upper limbs and is sometimes associated with pruritus or itching and an uncomfortable prickling or burning sensation. So another interesting fact about aquagenic urticaria is that women seem to have a slightly higher incidence than men. And in most cases, the age of onset is during or slightly after puberty. So relatively young women are the most common group afflicted with this condition. And actually there has been familial occurrences that have been reported on several occasions. And one case report specifically, the condition existed across three different generations in a single family. So three different generations all experienced people who had aquagenic urticaria. So maybe also a genetic component. So once an attack has happened, a refractory period lasting several hours has been demonstrated. So repeated, short, purposeful exposures to water can lead to exhaustion of the wheel response. Okay. So what you're saying is, let's say we have this person, they come in contact with water within about 20 minutes, they're going to get this intensely itchy red rash that kind of looks like stinging nettle. That's going to go away within about an hour. And after the fact, they won't respond as extremely right away for a little while. Exactly. Right. So if you keep having these small deliberate exposures, you can basically wear out your body's ability to even form a rash anymore. Yes. Ideally, that's what it would mean. However, it's so hard to study because these things cause people so much discomfort that most people, as we'll talk about later, just try and avoid water as much as possible. Right. Easier said than done. Exactly. When literally you can't shower. (laughs) Right. So how does this work? So Aquagenic urticaria is not fully understood. However, several mechanisms have been proposed. The first people who discovered it hypothesized that water interacts with sebum or sebaceous glands, generating toxic substances that stimulate mast cells to degranulate and release histamine. So I know that was a lot of words, but we're going to break it down. Great. Mast cells are immune cells and they're present in connective tissue throughout the body. So these mast cells are triggered, they're activated, and when they're activated, they, in scientific terms, degranulate or pretty much just explode and release the contents. So what do mast cells release? They release a substance called histamine. So this is created in the body naturally and then released into the bloodstream through this explosion or degranulation process when the immune system is protecting against an allergen. So this release of histamine causes the allergic reaction from an allergy trigger, such as pollen, mold, many foods, which is why you can think about someone who's having an allergic reaction will take an antihistamine. Right. Okay. That totally makes sense. 
Now, what's interesting is that you mentioned that this is only one hypothesis for how aquagenic urticaria actually works because the blood levels of histamine in patients with aquagenic urticaria is different. And because of that difference, the response to antihistamines is also different. So some people who have this quote unquote water allergy respond really well to antihistamines and it controls their symptoms while other people do not respond to antihistamine and it does not control their symptoms. Exactly. And with something that's so small and such a rare condition, it's hard to study because you don't have the populations involved. Right. Of course, only 50 people. So another mechanism that another study proposed is the existence of some sort of water-soluble antigen in the epidermal, which is the most superficial layer of the skin. And then this antigen diffuses or moves into the second deeper layer called the dermis via water, which then stimulates histamine. Interesting. So it's not the water itself. It's some thing that you can be allergic to that's water-soluble that then gets into your skin when you get wet. Exactly. So still related to a histamine release. Right. Another scientist suggested a mechanism that may be independent or as we would say, not associated with histamine release. So another group observed that some patients had more of an intense urticarial skin reaction in the presence of hypertonic saline than those exposed to tap water or normal saline. So now we're investigating, well, technically, I mean, you could say there's different types of water, right? Salt water versus fresh water. Exactly. So hypertonic, meaning there is more salt than a isotonic or neutral water solution. So interesting. That's kind of getting into the nitty gritty. Like does, would it only affect them if they went swimming in the ocean versus would a lake be okay? Right. Right. But then you also need to find someone who's willing to take that risk and participate in that study. Yeah. Like you said, again, hard to study. Exactly. And interestingly enough, there is another mechanism not related to histamine or hypertonic saline that researchers proposed. And that's basically the change in osmotic pressure or referring to the pressure that a solution creates. And that osmotic pressure change around the hair follicles results in the rash. So in summary, aquagenic urticaria may be influenced by histamine, salt concentration, or osmotic pressure. However, in the patient case we're about to discuss, the severity of aquagenic urticaria seemed to be related to the amount and duration of water contact with his skin. Interesting. So now time for our case. I can't wait. This is a 22-year-old male who was quite healthy otherwise. He has reported that he's had recurrent episodes of urticaria for the past 10 years. Wow, that's a long time. So like Hillary described, this urticaria is like after touching a stinging nettle. Multiple pinpoint wheels with redness appear 20 to 30 minutes after contact with water. Occasionally, this is associated with severe pruritus or itching. These symptoms generally last 20 to 40 minutes and resolve without the use of any medication and are located generally on the trunk and upper limbs. However, in this patient, they never appeared on the palms or lower limbs. He reported that several types of water could induce this episode, including tap water, distilled, seawater, rainwater, and even sweat. Also, don't forget about tears. Wow. So that kind of 
sort of debunks that one mechanism proposed that it was specifically with hypertonic saline. This shows it doesn't matter for this patient specifically. Yeah, this patient, that, that's, I never even thought of that, but yeah, tears made of water too. Imagine being allergic to your own tears. So these symptoms are mild if the patient wipes off the water as soon as the contact occurs and they're severe after prolonged contact, such as swimming or bathing. Uh, no rash develops when he is exercising or under emotional stress, which is interesting. So at the time of the interview, the patient denied shortness of breath or feeling faint related to these episodes. He did not have a personal history of allergies to any sort of drug, food, or physical substances, and none of his relatives had demonstrated a similar skin reaction on water contact. So how did the doctors go ahead and confirm that this gentleman had aquagenic urticaria? Well, mostly based on what he said. You know, he's been having these symptoms for the last 10 years. It sounds pretty straightforward. But just to be safe, they did some laboratory tests and nothing was abnormal. Nothing popped off the page. Is anything wrong? If you remember what IgE is, that's also something they can test in the blood. And they looked for that. And those levels were normal. They were not elevated. There's also a test for something called dermatographia. And that's where, like, let's say you take your forearm and you take your fingernail and you scratch a line in your forearm, just sort of gently, you know, a normal test would be nothing happens. There's no mark, but in dermatographia, you would have this raised red line wherever you've scratched. There's also a specific gold standard test for aquagenic urticaria. However, it's very uncomfortable for many patients and lots of people do not want to complete the test because it's called a water challenge test. This is where you take a wet cloth uh, with water temperature of about 35 degrees Celsius, and you put the wet cloth on the body and you leave that wet cloth on the body for about 30 minutes. And then you see what happens. The reason why they standardize the test to 35 degrees Celsius is because hot and cold can also cause urticaria. And so we want to make sure we're isolating the water as the problem and not necessarily just the temperature of the water. So this is a standard test where you apply this 35 degrees Celsius compress to the body for 30 minutes. And this patient did have a positive response to that test. So when the cloth was applied, he did have some eruptions form after 20 minutes. Subsequently, the patient underwent a shower test. So now instead of just putting a cloth on your body, you're actually getting in a shower with water temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. And again, multiple pinpoint wheels with redness around them appeared all over his trunk and upper arms, just like he had described. Now, when we are testing for this and we're trying to diagnose this specific type of urticaria, because it is so rare, we want to make sure we're ruling out the other types of physical urticaria too. Like we talked about hot or cold. There's also solar urticaria where you could be getting these rashes because of the sun. There's even a vibratory urticaria where strong vibrations can cause wheels on your body. And there's even something called cholinergic urticaria, which is stress induced, or when you sweat and have your fight or flight system kick in, you will get these sort of hives. But based on the patient's clinical picture, his water challenge test, it was pretty obvious that this patient did in fact have aquagenic urticaria. So now what do we do to treat it? So these physicians prescribed fexofenidate, which is an antihistamine at 60 milligrams twice a day. After two weeks, his skin lesions continued to develop. However, the itching seemed to improve. He refused to titrate or increase the dose of the antihistamine. 
because of concerns about accompanying adverse effects. Well, that's interesting. So a dose of phenofaxidine actually made his itching better. I mean, he still had a rash, but he didn't itch as much. So maybe he was less uncomfortable. And I mean, it sounds like he'd already been living with this for 10 years. So just even knowing what he had was probably a relief. I think knowing what he had was um, comforting and also just minor improvements can make such a big difference, such as losing an itch. Yeah, totally. And like you said, you know, there's all these sort of mechanisms about how this could possibly be happening. And in this patient, it does seem that histamine is playing a response if an antihistamine is making him feel better. So it's interesting that they kind of figured out not only what he was allergic to, but how that allergy was manifesting in him. So that wraps up our case for today's episode. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to bring you a new segment called In the News. Welcome back to the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Today, we are going to introduce a new and fun segment we're going to call In the News, where we discuss articles found about the topics we are talking about. So this article was found in the BBC, and I specifically found the language that they use in this case quite comical because water is something that, you know, we drink every day, we bathe, and it's just such a staple part of our lives. But this is pure evil for her. The article states, 33-year-old Rachel wakes up and drinks a kind of poison that feels like a glass of stinging nettles. As it slips down her throat, she can feel it blistering her skin, leaving a trail of red, itchy welts behind. Later that day, scorching drops of the stuff start falling from the sky. At the local leisure center, she watches others splash around in a pool of the irritant. They seem unfazed, but the moment she dips her toe in, she is forced with burning pain. Now, obviously referring to a normal swimming pool, rain, and just drinking a glass of water, which the average person has no issues with. But again, the sort of way that they dramatize it, emphasizing how painful this water is for her. Sounds a little dramatic, but I definitely think for someone with this condition, it feels that serious and it feels that dramatic because it is so painful and hurts that much. The article continues to talk about water, saying any contact with it whatsoever, even her own sweat, leaves Rachel with a painful, swollen, and intensely itchy rash, which can last for hours. Rachel said, quote, the reaction makes me feel as if I've run a marathon. I feel really tired, so I have to go sit down for quite a while. It's horrible, but if I cry, my face swells up. So (laughs) she can't even get upset about it because then that just makes it even worse. Yeah, like you said, really dramatic language, but it helps to illustrate how all-encompassing this condition would be and how simple things that we take for granted every day are really challenging for these people, like drinking a cup of water or going for a walk in the rain, which here in Vancouver, BC, we're very familiar with. And you said this was from the BBC, so they're probably very familiar with rain as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, and then she can't even, you know, get emotional or um, 
feel that pain and cry about it because it just makes it even worse. So I can't really imagine going through this. Um, I feel like cr- every time I cry, if that were to happen, I that'd be really tough. <laughs> it makes me feel like I cry a lot, but I probably don't. But totally. Yeah. So that was the article in the BBC. Um, Again, a little bit dramatic, but probably emphasizes their reality more to us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think the toughest thing for me personally would be the showering. Um, Right. And then that's a daily thing, right? Yeah, totally. And I found another article online about a Utah teen Uh, It's a young lady named Alexandra Allen. And when she was a little girl, she actually wanted to be a marine biologist and live on a sailboat. But after being diagnosed with an allergy to water, the 17-year-old said she realizes that that dream isn't likely to come true. So Alexandra described her first severe reaction to water at age 12. She was on vacation with her family and was swimming in the hotel pool like children often do. But later that night, she woke up itching and covered in hives. At first, she assumed she had a chlorine allergy or some other pool chemical in the water. So she just avoided swimming pools and thought that that would cure her symptoms. However, she knew the problem was much more serious after she broke out in hives after swimming in a lake with clear and clean waters. So interestingly, Alexandra actually found out about aquagenic urticaria online and brought it to the attention of her dermatologist. So much like We've talked about in some of our prior episodes, people finding an online community of others with similar symptoms. So she brings this to the attention of her dermatologist, and he actually agreed that he thought perhaps she did have aquagenic urticaria. And they performed the water challenge test that we spoke about in the case earlier, and Alexandra described it as it felt like being tortured. She also said that finding ways to avoid water has definitely been a challenge, Swimming is out, obviously. Uh, Like, you know, you mentioned in your article, Emma, the leisure center is described as splashing around in a pool of irritant. Interesting for Alexandra, she has also become vegetarian to try and reduce the oils in her skin or the sebum in her skin to avoid sweating. And she only takes two to three very short, cold showers a week. And another thing that I found, Alexandra also spoke with the patient that Emma was discussing in her article. So Alexandra and Rachel connected and spoke together about their condition that they both share. As we mentioned, you know, there's only about 50 people worldwide. So it's nice they found each other and were able to share some common ways that they deal with the symptoms. And because drinking water can be so torturous, they both discussed other options like milk and Diet Coke, which apparently seem to cause a less extreme response. And although this condition is serious and obviously affects these patients' day-to-day life every single day, overall, Alexandra stays positive about her situation. And she said, quote, at least I'm not allergic to dogs. And it gets me out of doing the dishes. (laughs) I think Alexandra has a great attitude towards it. I fully support the Diet Coke because I am fully an addict myself. And I would also like to get out of the dishes. So it's one way to look at it that keeps you going. And again, she can still have a dog. So totally, I think overall, she has a pretty good outlook. And I think this emphasizes the fact that she is connected to the um, patient that I talked about in the first case. And it shows the power of like online support groups and connecting people with the same disease. I know we talked about this in our very first episode of season one with breast implant illness. Yes. And how there's a huge online community, um, especially with something so rare. I mean, obviously breast plant illness was a little bit, there's more members in that community, but um, 
there is power and comfort in knowing someone else who's going through it and just having someone who's relatable and you can discuss strategies and things that you do to make life a little bit easier. Yeah. And understands what you're going through is sympathetic and empathetic to your situation. Exactly. Well, on that note, I think I'm going to go and enjoy a nice long hot shower. And maybe even splash around in the irritant for a little longer than necessary. I might even consume a glass of the scorching poison at the same time. Yeah, I just took a drink myself too. I'm just parched after this episode. (laughs) Totally. All right, friends. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at Probably Not Lupus.